Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. This is a topic or question that causes a lot of controversy within the Christian community, not among Catholics, but among other Christians. Does purgatory actually exist? Where do we get this? Is it biblical? And most importantly, what does it mean about Christ saving the world? What does it mean about accepting his forgiveness? How does purgatory factor in if we have some sort of punishment we have to do? These are all very important questions and questions at the core of answering this particular question. Now, to start out with, I want to make a point about purgatory. It technically has biblical foundations. Although the word is not actually in the Bible, the word purgatory does not exist in the Bible, there are inklings and places in which it does conform to a lot of mentalities that have existed throughout the Bible. The most notable one is in the second book of Maccabees. In the second book of Maccabees, we have Judas Maccabeus, who has just noticed that out of the Israel army that's fighting the Romans, Several of them are carrying an amulet, and that because they're carrying this amulet, those are the ones who died. After noticing this, he says, okay, send back some tribute to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices for them, because they need to remit their sins. And he said that even though they are dead, there is something yet to come, a life to come after this. And because of the life to come after this, they need to be remitted of their sins. This is the first inkling of an idea called purgatory, a place where people who are have sinned are being purged or purified of that so that something greater can happen. There's some other inklings throughout the old throughout the New Testament in which Jesus mentions things or the letters mention some things. Jesus mentions that there's a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Normally we think of this as hell, not purgatory. But he also mentions that there's a the ones that are holy go someplace, the ones that don't go another place but it doesn't really clarify what that means. And even in Paul's letters, we have some sense of, I am filling up what's lacking in the suffering of Christ. There's some part of me that has a part in this. And it's these kinds of things that drive us into a mentality of purgatory. Now, to really understand purgatory, we have to remember a few core concepts, that God is just and God is merciful. What do we mean by God is just or God is justice? This is a very critical and important aspect of Christianity. It states that God is just, and because God is just, his judgments are just. The image that we have for this is that I am the accused, and I have a defendant, and I have an accuser, and I'm standing in a courtroom in which the judge is going to make a pronouncement against me. There's also the jury. After we've heard all the arguments and made all the evidence, looked at all the evidence, the jury makes their verdict, and then the judge ratifies the verdict with a punishment. This is what we think of as justice, kind of our justice system. But when I say that God is just, it means that when God acts, it is correct and right. It is the appropriate thing to do. For instance, when God notices that we have transgressed his commands, we have not followed them, we have broken them, he knows what that means, and he knows exactly what the punishment should be due to those crimes, due to that sin. There's no dispute like, hmm, I wonder what the punishment could be. He knows exactly how much harm was caused. He knows exactly what is necessary to heal and remedy that situation. 
So in this context, what we're really noticing about God's justice is that it's not some sort of like penal system where he has to impose a, a punishment on people, but it's a reality that God desires all people to be healed, forgiven, and brought to new life, and that he knows exactly what it takes for us to be healed and brought to new life. He knows exactly what we have to do on our end, the punishment that we need, in order to bring the healing for the crimes we have committed. So in this particular context, the judge imagery is that God is the judge, Jesus is the defendant, I am the accused, the devil is the accuser, and we don't need a jury because, frankly, God knows everything that happened. We technically don't even need a trial because God knows everything so well that we're not really wondering, oh, I wonder what he actually did. Instead, God knows what happened, and because of that, he can pronounce a proper judgment. You did it. Here is your crime. Now, the challenge that comes with God's justice is that we have to kind of understand how God works out that justice. Because technically speaking, if we were to be fully accused of every crime, every sin we committed, and fully punished for that, no one could ever make up the difference or bring the healing necessary to come up to remedy all of our crimes, all of our sins. There's no way. There's absolutely no way we could be fully forgiven for all of our sins on our own accord. There's nothing I can do to merit that. And that is very, very important. Because that drives us into the whole idea of Jesus. So Jesus, the man who, or the God who became man, he's the one who took on all the punishment due to sin. Through his passion, death, and resurrection, he took on the weight of all of our sinfulness, the effects of our sins, and because of that, we are now free. Great. So now in that courtroom image again, we have me, the accused, Jesus, my defendant, the devil accusing me or God accusing me, God the judge with no jury. Jesus then, once he hears the pronouncement of God that this is the judgment, he says, no, can I take that punishment? I want to stand in his place and not have him deal with the punishment. This particular form is called penal substitution. What penal substitution means is that when someone is accused and they are required to fulfill a penance or a punishment, that someone else stands in their place. They take the punishment for them. For instance, if I was a murderer and I murdered a person and my sentence was 30 years in prison, someone stands up and says, I'll take those 30 years in prison on his behalf kind of a bold move if you think about it. Why would somebody want to go to 30 years of prison on the behalf of someone who was a murderer? But this is exactly the mystery of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. That he did something that, so he could take on our punishment. Now there's a problem with this. The problem with penal substitution is that it makes it look like we have no part in it. That we have no reason to be part of the system. We have nothing to merit our forgiveness. We don't even have to worry about being forgiven. Jesus just stands up and takes it. But, wait, where am I in this equation? What do I do? Do I care? Does it matter? Can I just kind of move on with my life knowing that Jesus has saved me? Well, we're going to come back to that point in a minute once we talk about the next two types of um, justice. Two types of systems. The second one is called satisfaction. Satisfaction comes from the idea that God is angry because of our sin. Whenever his laws are transgressed, whenever there's a crime done, God is angered. And there's a good reason for it. Whenever we have transgressed his laws, whenever we didn't follow them, we have hurt the people around us. And whenever someone is hurt, God notices. 
as it says so eloquently in the Old Testament, whenever one of the least of these cries out to me, I will avenge them. God has a particular like for the people who are the lowest, the people who are oppressed, the people who are hurt, and he wants to help them. So, whenever there is an issue where someone who is the oppressed or someone in general is hurt by the transgression of God's laws, then he is angered. He is brought to anger. And not only is he angry, he is wrathful. He wants vengeance. So do the people who, who are crying out, Vengeance! So, what happens? Technically speaking, I am the one who has caused the sin, and therefore God's wrath and its full brunt of fury is upon me. God will punish me. He will avenge that person. I can't take that. That is way too much for me. Jesus, the one who suffered for us, takes the brunt of God's wrath. He, deal, he experiences the fullness of God's wrath and takes the whole punishment for me, so I don't feel any of that. There's an inherent problem in this, a very serious problem, that Jesus is God, and God the Father is God, and now God is divided. As the Council of Nicaea said so prominently, God cannot be divided. They are wholly, entirely one. There is no way there can be a conflict in God. So how can God's wrath be pushed against God himself? Or how can God decide to be vengeful to himself? This doesn't make sense. How can it be that God punishes himself? Or that he can take on the brunt of that fury and call it right? Although both of these theories have their issues, there is a nice middle ground that fits between the two that really does show how all of this works. And realistically, both of them are important. So yes, God is angry because of our sins. Vehemently mad. Because he sees the pain and the horror that's caused. He sees that harm, and he wants to remedy it. He wants everyone to be brought to fullness and life again. Yes, we are also being accused. We realistically will go before God at the end of time or at the end of our life and have to account for all of our crimes, all of the sins we have committed. In both these situations, Jesus takes his, our place. Because God knows that we cannot possibly make up all of the harm and problems we've caused by our sins, because there's no way, no way, we can do enough penance to right the wrongs and bring healing again. He makes that avenue. Jesus did it for us. Now, not just quite all for us. As the letter of James says so well, and St. Paul says well, James says, faith without works is dead. And St. Paul says, I fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ with my own sufferings. We need a part in this. And this is where I need to take a segue moment and come back to this point so that you understand where I'm coming from. God, in his immensity, loves to work through his creation. He loves to work with everything. He made angels just so he has servants who serve him and do his will and have other people who participate in his saving mystery. Even the animals and the plants, the rocks and the cosmos participate in their own way in God's work to save the world. So too do we. We have a part to play in this. God wants us to participate in his salvation. He wants us to be part of it. He wants us to have an active role in not only saving ourselves, but saving the entire world. That's why this is so important. We have a part to play. And if Jesus completely takes away all form of punishment, all form of any sort of consequence from our actions, 
we have no part. We are completely devoid of all um, activity. We are completely devoid of meaning in our lives. We could have easily lived our entire lives, never experienced God, never knew Him, didn't follow His commands, died, and at the last moment before death said, I repent, and Jesus said, good enough, I'll take the brunt, and then we're free. Well, there's some serious problems there. That means makes life completely meaningless. Now the atheist wins out because he at least believes there's meaning in life where we don't really find any meaning at all. Similarly, it means that I have no point in this life. Everything I do is inconsequential. It really doesn't matter in the end. Let's tie all these pieces together. So, if Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrathful anger, or if he took the full brunt of the punishment due to the sins that I've committed, and I had no part in it, that diminishes who I am, diminishes the dignity of the human person, and also reduces some level of my commitment to this. Think of it this way. Let's say I invited a friend out to eat lunch. And on the day that we were supposed to go out for lunch, I realized that it's 4 o'clock, and I completely forgot, completely blew off the entire event. Out of just sadness and frustration for what has happened, I call my friend and say, man, I'm sorry, I completely forgot about it. What can I do to make it up to you? That idea, what can I do to make it up to you, is inherent in who we are. That we want in some way to be a part of the forgiveness. We want to do something to right wrongs. We ultimately want to bring forgiveness and wholeness again. And that's why this is so important. Jesus took the full brunt of the force that we could not handle, the part that we could not do, but then left us a very small part that we don't do on our own as though this is like my punishment, but we do it in, with, and through Jesus. It's because we are now fully united with him or becoming more and more united with him that this last bit of punishment that we experience, this last effect of sin, the residual effects of our crimes, all of that can now bring healing, but I have a part in it. I am actively working to forgive. I am actively working to root that out of my life. I am actively working to bring relationships back to their fullness. That's my part. And the dignity of who I am demands that I do something and not just fully accept it. Because when I am a part of it, when I am fully cooperating with God's grace, when I am fully desiring to bring healing and salvation again to people, I am cooperating with God's mission to save the world. Also, I now experience God's forgiveness because I have done something. I have a part in it. I now can, like, assent to it. That's what's so important about this idea of forgiveness, that we ultimately want a part in it, and God wants our heart. If he wants our heart, then we have to give it. In order to give it, we have to have some reason to love him. And we love him because of the forgiveness he has given us. The wonderful example is Mary of Magdala, who comes to Jesus before his crucifixion and anoints his feet with oil. Her great love, because of the forgiveness she's felt, draw her into the mystery of God. And she desires to now do something in response. She wants to love and love him fully. So then this leads us to our question for today. What is purgatory? Purgatory is a place in which people are being purified or purgated of their sins and the problems that they've caused so that they can be fully purified and be ready for heaven. Sweet, that was simple. Why is purgatory so important? What purgatory does 
And why is an aspect of theology or even a reality is because it recognizes our desire for forgiveness. It recognizes that we are not fully ready for heaven just on death. And it gives us an opportunity to experience the fullness of healing, to work towards healing, and be ready to experience the full glory of heaven. The people in purgatory are those who have already accepted God's gift of forgiveness and have desired to do something to make up for their crimes, whatever that might be. Purgatory is that place where they're on track for heaven and ready to experience God's mercy and forgiveness and are fully cooperating in it to help save the world. That's purgatory. Now, there's lots of things that go around purgatory that are much more complicated and convolute this situation quite significantly. The first one is, and I just mentioned a moment ago, some people think of purgatory as like the third way. There's heaven, there's hell, and there's purgatory. No, there's heaven and there's hell. At the end of time, there's only one judgment. It's either heaven or hell. If you choose hell, you're going against God's forgiveness and mercy and choosing your own route. If you choose heaven, you are cooperating with God's mercy, you are fully accepting it, and purgatory is that preparatory stage for heaven. Those who are in purgatory will be in heaven. Which then leads to a question, how long are they in purgatory? And this is where things get complicated. Purgatory is both in time and out of time simultaneously, because if there's a time limit, that means you can get in and out of it. That also means that those who are in purgatory are on their track to something that is eternal. Some people like to say punishments are like a thousand years in purgatory, a hundred years in purgatory. Honestly, I have no idea what that means. What is a thousand years in purgatory? If God sees a thousand years of the day and a day is a thousand years, what does that look like? I don't know. But the reality is this. Whatever it takes for us to really fully remedy our lives, whatever it takes for us to bring that healing, that's how long it'll take. And that's it. One point I do want to make very clear is that purgatory does not diminish God's justice, nor does it diminish Jesus' act of saving the world. Consequently, it protects God's justice. Because if God is fully just, and everything he does is just, and his punishments are just, and he desires healing and salvation to the world, and he's still very merciful, by just remitting all of our sins and saying, nope, you don't have to experience this, everything's fine, don't worry about it, that's not just. What would you say to the woman who just lost her child to gang violence? Oh, don't worry, the gangster is is saved, he's fine. But my son? Or what about the father whose child was just raped? Like, these are serious situations in which we don't want to say, oh good, God will save, they'll be fine now, eventually they'll all be healed and ready again. There's some level of us where we say, no, we want vengeance. We want something to make up for this, to bring the healing, because there's damage that was done, and that damage needs to be healed. So that's part of the just aspect aspect of purgatory. True full justice would be, this is your punishment, take it. A merciful justice is, this is the right punishment, but you can't you can't do that. So I'm giving you what you can do. That's mercy a much mitigated settlement or punishment. That's how we can keep God's justice and mercy connected in the idea of purgatory. Purgatory actually protects for God's justice. It also makes Jesus' salvation make more sense. Because if someone just died and repented right before their death and was saved from all things and went to heaven, 
that's a free ticket. Why bother in this life? Why bother doing anything at all? We might as well just do whatever we feel like, repent every so often so we make sure we do before we die, and then keep moving on. That's not really cultivating our lives in light of God God in general, or even God's justice. It's like, do whatever you want and get a free ticket at the end. That's not really what God wants. He wants their hearts. He wants us. He wants us to follow his laws most fully and to build a just society. And if we're not willing to do that, we're not really willing to do what God intends. So that's why purgatory is also important. It reminds us that God is just and merciful and Jesus has saved us, remitted the crime, the punishment due our crimes and our sins, but also we're not done yet. Our lives have meaning. It means that in this life, I can do the punishments caused by my sin. I can start to work towards that. I can cooperate with God's salvation. I can cooperate with God's will. Following his laws will lead to good things. I have reason to live and to thrive and to do something in this life. I don't just repent at the last moment and hope for the best. I have a part in this to play. And God gave that to me. That's what's so beautiful about this. And why this is so essential and important. The last thing I want to talk about, on a kind of side note, is that there's a few aspects in Catholicism that really do play on this idea of purgatory and give us new expressions, and I want to kind of bring them to light. One of them is called penance. Penance is an action done by a person to start to remit the sin's cause, the punishment due to the sin that is caused. That through acts of penance, through things that renounce our self-will and renounce who we are and kind of... uh, They're not fun stuff, let's just put it that way. We are starting to make up for the punishment we should be due and to remit that sin here and now so that, as some of the saints have experienced, we go right to heaven and don't have to deal with purgatory. That is the ultimate goal, to go right to heaven. So one of those aspects is called an indulgence. Indulgence has a bad rap because in the 15th and 16th century, Martin Luther made a big deal about it and said indulgences are not part of the Christian tradition and therefore they are corrupt. And at that time, I agree with him. They are definitely corrupt, but they have always been a part of the Christian tradition. What an indulgence is, it's a good, pious act that by doing it, the person starts to remit the sin, due, the punishment due to sin. For example, visiting a cemetery and praying for the dead. That's a good act regardless. And so the Pope said that if on All Souls Day, you go and you visit a graveyard and vi- um, pray for the sick, and then you, sorry, pray for the dead, and then you go to confession, and you have a complete detachment from sin, you have a full indulgence. The punishment due to the sin is gone. How does that work? Well, we're cooperating with what God wants us to do. He wants us to pray for the dead. He wants us to have a part in that. He wants us to help heal and preserve and protect people to bring them into heaven. So we're doing that. We're also working in our lives to root out sin and be ready for heaven which is the full detachment from sin. Yet, I don't know what the full detachment from sin means and whether that's even possible. Regardless, it's good to do good acts. And if we do them with the right intention, then it's always a good thing and we have nothing to worry about. And that's the point of indulgences. The Pope or the Bishop have declared good acts to be done by Christians that we may do them rightly and well and so start cultivating our lives in light of virtue and preparing ourselves for heaven. One other point to make in the midst of that is that we can pray for the dead. 
Purgatory is a place of waiting for heaven. These are places where people are being purified and purgated. We can offer masses for them. We can pray for them. We can help them along their journey by the stuff we do in this life. We have a part not just in this life, but just like praying for a friend, we can pray for any of our loved ones because we know that they're on track, because we know that God is merciful. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 